This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where we take a closer look and dig a little deeper into this week's sermon. What's going on, Bible nerds? We are talking about Acts 21 today, so let's take a closer look. What's up, friends? How we doing? Let's do this. Okay. This is a... Chapter 21 is an interesting... Chapter in the book of Acts, because it's predominantly a travel log. At least the first half of it is a travel log of all the places that Paul goes on his journey to Jerusalem. So you will, if you've been around church or Sunday school for any length of time, you will have heard Paul take these missionary journeys. I don't really love that language, but there are these different waves and he always takes them out of Jerusalem. And so the conclusion of those journeys are when he arrives back at Jerusalem this is his second one. He's arriving back at his second one. And this he gets this interesting exchange with someone, beginning in verse 7. When we have finished the voyage from Tyree, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we, greet, and we greeted the believers and stayed with them for one day. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, and we went into the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven... And stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Let's go ahead and say this. The gift of prophecy, if you think about 1 Corinthians 14 or 1 Corinthians 12 or even Romans 12, you think about any of these spiritual gift chapters that we have in the epistles from the apostles. And you think about Peter's sermon at Pentecost where he quotes Joel 2, that your sons and daughters will prophesy. Mm -hmm. It's not uncommon that women have the gift of prophecy. It's uncommon that we're told that women have the gift of prophecy. So here we are. We meet this character. you got four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. While we were staying there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us and took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands with it, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. So here we go. Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is not an ancient divinizer. This, or sorry, this is an ancient divinizer, but this is not a pagan divinizer. This is a Christian divinizer speaking and proclaiming prophecy in the name of the Holy Spirit. This is the way the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Anyone who's not Jewish. Yeah, but who are they in this? What's the prophet like what's the prophecy? Who are they gonna hand him over to? I don't know. Rome. Mm. Rome. This is no longer this is not this is not a church institution war anymore. Mm -hmm. This is a political war that Paul has become a pawn in, and he's going to be turned over to the Gentiles. He's going to be turned over to Rome. He's going to be turned over to political powers just like Jesus was from Mm -hmm. Jerusalem, from the people. Yeah. I do want you to see, Luke does tell this story in a pseudo-parallel storytelling of the 
the story of Jesus. It is Paul traveling around proclaiming a message of Jesus and then being taken over and killed by empire. Yeah. At the hands of the, the Jews. same people yeah. who Yeah, yeah. It's all like it's a very parallel, but it's not one for one in the way that some of these other ones are, right? Yeah. So like Genesis one through eleven has three like almost mirrored parallel storytellings. So Genesis one through three is one parallel story to, or is one storytelling. And then that is like almost verbatim retold in the same pattern mm-hmm. in the story of Noah. Mm-hmm. And then it's retold in an, in like an encapsulated place in Genesis 11. Mm-hmm. This parallel storytelling is not that tight, but it's pretty close. Mm-hmm. Verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So they hear this and they get afraid. Like mm-hmm. Paul, our leader, this you know main ministry guy. No, you can't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. We need to talk about something real quick. Why would Paul be ready and prepared to die for the name of the Lord Jesus? What's the value of someone dying for a message? I mean, it shows conviction, but in an instance like this, you know, Paul's whole thing that comes later, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There it is. Okay, so, you know, our dad read the Apostolic Fathers. Um so my dad came to me and was like, hey, do you have a copy of the Apostolic Fathers? I was like, yeah. He's like, let me read it. The Apostolic Fathers are a bunch of writings written about the time of the New Testament that never made it into the Bible. Mm-hmm. Okay, some of them are a little bit later, just after, but it's like there's a lot of contemporary stuff going on here too. Like one of them is Polycarp, who's a disciple of John. There's an epistle from Barnabas, who is listed in the Bible. Like these are contemporary people happening around. One thing my dad said, my dad kept always going, man, these people are whack. These people are whack. These people are whack. And I kept going, why? Why are they whack, dad? Why are they whack? And he go, man, everybody just want to die. He's (laughs) like, everybody wants to be a martyr. He's like, they think that if they're martyred, it's like the epitome of the Christian life. It's like, yeah. They do. They absolutely do. Because they're imitating Jesus. If, if, if the ultimate expression of God's love is giving your life down for someone else, then the ultimate expression of faithfulness to God's love mm-hmm. is laying your life down for the message and liberation of someone else. Yeah. And so Paul says, Remember, Paul's also the guy that loves to use a slave metaphor. He's yeah. calling Jesus Lord here. That's a master title. That's a, yeah. that's a slavery title. Yeah, yeah. And so Paul's saying, look, my life's not my own anyways. I'll gladly give that up for a message of liberation for other people. Mm-hmm. That is the call of Christ. Verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, we remain silent except to say the Lord's will be done. Okay, Clayton. When you hear the Lord's will be done, your mind should be skyrocketing. 
What the hell is that? Why are they saying that? The Lord will, thy will be done. Mm-hmm. Oh, Why are they saying that? It's the it's like Garden of Gethsemane language. Like, well, it's not Garden of Gethsemane. Well, it's uh, the Lord's Prayer, Sermon mm, on the Mount language. Got you. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Heard. The didache, didache is just the Greek word for teaching. So the teaching. Presumably written around the year 120, so not here yet. Like, we haven't gotten here yet. But in the Didache, it writes down the teachings of the apostles. That's what it means, the teaching of the apostles. How do you be a Christian in the earliest years? One of the things the Didache told people to do was pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Mm-hmm. It's very common for ancient Christians to say the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. This is a part of it. Just like, Lord, your will be done. Just like offering that ex- exclamation that we know that you're supreme in heaven and that you have a will here to enact on earth. And that will is a will of life and not death. Your will be done. However you want to accomplish that, that's what we got going here. Verse 15. After these days, we got ready and started to go up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came along and brought us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. Verse 17. When we arrived in Jerusalem, the, the, the place we've been waiting on, right? When we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul went with us to visit James, and all the elders were present. Who's James? Uh, James the disciple or James the brother of Jesus? Ah, same person, but yes. Okay. Um, well, there's also James, son of Zebedee, but yeah. Mm. Um, yes, James, the brother of Jesus, becomes the leader of the church. Yeah. He becomes the leader of the Jerusalem council. He's the one that... Um, is around that we continue to get told about. So yes, Jesus's brother, James, half brother, James, and all the elders are present. After greeting them, he related one by one, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they praised God. Then they said to him, you see brother, how many thousands of believers there are among the Jews And they are all zealous for the law. Okay. I want want to note something here. I'm not going to make a big grand claim about it because I don't know that there's really one to make, but I do want to point something out. That in Philippians 3, when Paul talks about his own accolades, when he was a Pharisee, He builds all of these accolades up so that he can say, I count it all as nothing for the sake of Christ. One of the things in there is he calls himself a zealot. A zealot is someone who uses zeal to prove their worth, devotion, value to God, those kinds of things. Jews love that. Jews eat that stuff up. Yep. Zeal, like all the zealots and like all the people that are 
trying to prove their worth, have these apocalyptic worldviews. Like people are willing to do extravagant things to prove their worth to God or prove their devotion to God. And so James is still seeing that. James is still seeing it. We see Paul really move away from that. Mm -hmm. Paul really doesn't have any interest in zeal. Um, When we get to read his own letters, Paul has zero interest in that. I want to note that because we see Paul play along with their cries for zealous. So let's, let's pause there for a second. If we could, the reason that my brain went to Gethsemane with the, your will be done language was, um, here, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me yet. Not what I want, but what you want. And then again, after he goes back to pray the second time, um, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Yeah. So, so it's like Jesus uses that in Gethsemane, but he's yeah. using a pattern to establish from the correct. Lord's Prayer. Yeah, correct. Yeah, he's praying this way. Yeah, and it's Our just... Our Father who art in heaven. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's really interesting to me that like this, this moment before Jesus' death, he prays a your will be done prayer. Oh yeah, for sure. And then... In this moment that Paul has prophesied that he's going to be captured and whatever, given over to the Gentiles, he prays that same prayer. And yeah. he says, I would not only give up my own, uh, I would not only be bound, but also give up my life. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, For sure. Well, it is. And so to your point, you're absolutely right to pick up on it. But this is not this is not a recitation of Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. Gethsemane is a recitation of, of the, the Lord's, Lord's prayer. prayer. Right, right, right. Heard. Which is just Heard, heard, heard. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. So, verse 21. They have been told about you and that you teach all the Jews living among the Gentiles to forsake Moses and that you tell them not to circumcise their children or observe the custom. So, Paul's out being a spokesperson for the mission of Jesus, telling them the Gentiles, to do certain things, okay? Mm -hmm. Those things they clearly don't like. Here's why. Verse 22. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Join these men, go through the rite of purification with them, and pay for the shaving of their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, and that you yourself observe and guard the law. So they want Paul to perform some actions, some behaviors, to say, no, the law actually does matter. Which Paul thinks the, law's, the law matters. Don't, yeah, yeah. don't hear Paul saying the law doesn't matter. Paul thinks the law matters in the same way that I think the Bible matters. But Paul doesn't think the law is absolutely perfect in the same way I don't think the Bible is absolutely perfect. And so they want Paul to perform these behaviors so that they can go, look, see, Paul even follows the law. You should too. Because, verse 25, but as for the Gentiles who become believers, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. That's the letter that they sent after they got the report in in Acts 15. The Jerusalem Council, remember? Mm. When they did this. The uh, Clayton, the moral law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I can't help but notice that James and the Council of Elders are using the law for uniformity. It's not about unity. It's not about the work of the Spirit. It's not about diversity. It's about uniformity. It's about the way in which all of y'all are supposed to conform and look like us. When that's certainly not the message of the gospel, because the gospel was, or certainly not the message of the first part of Acts, because the foundational premise of the book of Acts, if you were going to try to sum up Acts in one verse, like, what the heck does any of this mean? It's this. Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Well, hang on. What's a witness, Clayton? Someone who saw something. Somebody who saw something and told somebody about that thing. Yeah. Correct? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. you just going to go tell people. Mm-hmm. That's all you're going to do. The Holy Spirit is the one that's supposed to do the work of telling them what it means. And the church, this is the problem the church has always had. The church has tried to use their power to tell people how to behave and how they must all look the same. They must look like me, smell like me, talk like me, have the same education as me, have the same political views as me. The church has always sought uniformity. Mm-hmm. That's unfortunate. It's not the message of the gospel. But, Paul does something here that I admire the hell out of him for. He lives the perfect example of pick and choose your battles. Yeah. 26. Then Paul took them in, and the next day, having purified himself, he entered the temple with them, making public the completion of the days of purification when the sacrifice will be made for each of them. Paul did what they told him to. Paul did what they told him to because it wasn't worth making waves. Mm -hmm. Paul had a courteous faith. This is what I talked about on Sunday. A courteous faith. A faith that sought unity. And he didn't need uniformity for the sake of it. Because when he goes to write his letters, which most of them are after this, right? Um... He kind of throws out all the things they tell him to do. Mm-hmm. He just starts telling the recipients of the letters whatever he thinks they need to do. Because sometimes it's not about deconstruction, it's about reconstruction. Yeah. And sometimes that's in relationships. Sometimes that's in the spaces that we need to be in and reconstructing um, relationships and views and the things that need to happen in order for us to continue the mission, right? Paul will later say in one of his epistles, if they're not against us, they're for us. In the same way, I think Paul is making some decisions to go along in order to get along, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, And I think Paul thought this was a concession that was worth making. 
And I would challenge each of us to search within ourselves asking, are there concessions that I myself think are worth making?